patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and the show. I hope you enjoy it. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and share this show with your friends and family. Today is a very, very special day for me because I am also sharing something new to all of you. In fact, it's a new day for Friends and Fellow Citizens. As we approach this halfway to 100 mark here, we're also starting a brand new series today. I hinted a couple weeks back about a new series. I didn't tell you guys what it was called because I want to make a surprise, but I am very happy to announce that today is the first episode of the Sacred Honor series. The Sacred Honor series is named after the final two words of the Declaration of Independence. So you can kind of see where the show is kind of going in terms of the subject matter. The last sentence of the Declaration of Independence, before it gets down to the signatories down below, says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, unquote. This is the quote that I got for the title, and the main focus of this series is to examine each of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and take in some of the values and lessons from their experiences and apply that to today. Extracting these kinds of lessons from the signers, I think, is an incredibly important part of our civics And it's a way for us to bridge the past and the present. Because if history remains in the past, it can never really be fulfilled as something of value. This series will be every four weeks, starting today. And the order of the episodes is kind of unique. I wanted to do something that aligns as best as possible with the actual document and the signing of it. So the order of the episodes will be based on the order in which the delegates signed the Declaration of Independence. And what they did was that they had the President of Congress, John Hancock, sign it first. And the signatures go top to bottom, starting from the right and goes towards the left. So after Hancock, they start with New Hampshire and then Massachusetts, etc., and goes all the way down to Georgia, which is the the colony in the very southernmost part uh, of the 13 colonies. Today, obviously, will be our first episode, so we will be focusing on the president of Congress, John Hancock. Now, when most people think of John Hancock, they think of the company – just not, by the way, uh, financing this episode or this series. I'm just saying it's a uh, very, very interesting name, I would say. 
it's also a term that we also use well to signify a signature and notably because john hancock had that huge huge signature um there is a myth out there unfortunately that says that he signed it so big so that george the third didn't need spectacles uh, unfortunately that's not true although i i would say though the, the passion is definitely there it's no question about it. I, I definitely think the passion was there and hancock really wanted george the third to see it the, the passion again is Super duper important, and there actually is a connection between George III and Hancock, which I'll get into later. Hancock was born in 1737, and he was quite a wealthy guy. He unfortunately lost his father when he was quite young, and so he worked and lived with his uncle. And his uncle had a very, very successful business. And so Hancock was really thrown into the wealthy status in the colonies at the time. And what's interesting is that as things were kind of going crazy starting in the 1760s after the French and Indian War, Hancock was wealthy. He was quite well known as that big business guy, uh, but he was not really that supportive of independence. In fact, he many, many times he said that independence was not essentially sustainable, that he didn't support it. But a lot of this started to change. Just to kind of recap here, in the seventeen in 1765, the British Parliament passed the Stamp Act, because obviously Britain was running out of money. Very, very costly war. And the British felt like, look, the colonies should be paying it up, paying up and paying for at least some of it. And so they passed the Stamp Act, which required a tax on, well, as you can probably imagine, stamps. Um, and everything on letters, on other documents, other objects needed a stamp, um, and that there was a tax on it. But the Stamp Act obviously was just a, such a huge slap in the face for the colonists. They felt like they had no say in this. Uh, it was an unfair tax. I'm sure a lot of them felt it was quite stupid as well, uh, because why would you be paying a tax on something like this? And people just started to resent. They started to resent uh, Parliament. They felt that they didn't have a say in the system. And the Stamp Act was so unpopular, all these protests, all these, all this opposition going on. And so Parliament got rid of the Stamp Act. And the guy named Charles Townsend thought, you know what? Okay, these guys, the colonists didn't like the Stamp Act, but they're going to love this new set of taxes on basically almost anything you can think of, you know, goods, services, and all that, called the Townsend Acts. I'm sure they're going to love this. Well, that didn't really happen, did it? Uh, Charles Townsend was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which in simple terms is kind of the base of the treasurer, the main economic policy advisor to the prime minister. And when the Townsend Act started passing in, in 1767 and 1768, and just like what we saw with the Stamp Act, a lot of people hated it. All kinds of protests, all kinds of people refusing to pay taxes. There was obviously a boycott of British goods. And all this while, Hancock is seeing all this happening. But again, as a business guy in that time, you can imagine you didn't want to frustrate a lot of people if you wanted to keep making money. And Hancock obviously had his own business. He had his own ships. 
He was bringing goods in and out of Boston Harbor and other parts of the colonies. And this was very much his lifeline. And he wanted to keep that as much as he could. But over time, he grew more and more upset with what was happening. And he said many, many times that Parliament was misguided and that what they were doing was just absolutely unacceptable. But things didn't really change bigly for him until 1768. On May 9th, 1768, something that would change not only Hancock as a political figure, but something that would change the city of Boston, something that would change perhaps the trajectory of these protests started on that night. See, Hancock had a ship called the Liberty, which is a great name, obviously. Really, really amazing name for a ship that was just coming into Boston Harbor, about to unload some fancy wine. And this ship could hold 100 crates or boxes of this wine. It had 25 loaded, though, when it was coming into Boston Harbor. And in the port of Boston, the customs officials working for the British government are obviously tasked to go on these ships and make sure all the papers are in order, uh, make sure that the cargo is all reported, and that no one was smuggling anything into the colonies to try and avoid the taxes. It's certainly, uh, around that time, they were very, very concerned. But there's also something that was going on that was quite sinister. You see, when customs officials catch smugglers, it's on, it's a big incentive for them because not only is it a way to exercise power, but the fines that these people could collect could benefit the governor. At that time, it was Governor Thomas Hutchinson. It could benefit the crown and just basically line a lot of pockets. You often hear the expression, it all comes down to money. Well, this is a classic example. And so a lot of these officials had quite a bit of pleasure in annoying people. Uh, now, this is definitely something that you, you definitely don't want to do, uh, but they thought that it, was, it was very, very ludicrous. So what happened was that this ship called the Liberty just pulls into Boston Harbor, and a customs official named Thomas Kirk boards the ship to do routine inspection. He's got all the papers, everything's in order. Hancock actually had a problem with the customs officials. One time, these guys literally just came on a ship, didn't have any reason, any proof that they they had to check his ship, and, and eventually, basically just kicked them out. So, so customs officials were not particularly happy about this anyway. And so there's one guy, Thomas Kirk, goes on to the ship to do his thing. And he finds the 25, and he says, all right, you're, you you got to pay whatever tax it, it is on the 25. But not so fast, thought these customs officials. They thought, you know, we got to get Hancock here. All this protest, all this stuff that's happening, it's too much. We, we got we to make a statement here. And we're going to do it to this guy, this big business guy whom everybody likes a lot, everybody knows. And so Kirk initially reports that, okay, well, you got to pay on the 25 boxes. But then he changed the story. 
he claimed that he was talking to the Liberty captain and the captain just, I guess, lures him to, into a particular, to his room and he locks up Kirk supposedly. And as he was locked in this room, he supposedly heard some illegal unloading. He felt that they were unloading more boxes of wine so that they can smuggle it and escape the taxes. And that was his story. And that and he changed his story and people started to get really, really irritated. Word started spreading about something, some commotion that was happening. Then there was another problem. There was a ship called the HMS Romney that was just kind of sitting around there. I don't know exactly what they were doing. Uh, supposedly, they were sent perhaps by the military because there were just some things going wrong over there. And they thought, all right, we'll just send a guy there just to show our might, just to show how how powerful the British government was. And the HMS Romney was commanded by a guy named Captain John Corner. Now, Corner officially was told not to do anything, not to intervene unless something crazy was happening. But Captain Corner was like, I, I, I don't know if he was bored or because he just really wanted like to annoy people. But he decided, nah, you know, we were kind of cash strapped and I could use some, you could use a hand on my ship. So I'm going to start impressing. Uh, uh, these colonists now not impressing as in ooh, i'm very impressed not that impressed impressing as in forcing colonists to do public service or i should say not really public service that sounds kind of rosy but to, to uh, basically force them to work for the navy and that's what was what was going on just started annoying people started annoying even even the innocent folks who were just trying to bring ships in and out he annoyed them too not not the coolest guy out there, clearly. So you had this guy, Captain Corner, with his little ship, HMS Romney, and the Boston port official collector, Joseph Harrison, and the controller, Benjamin Hallowell, thought, you know, the board of commissions here at the port of Boston, we're, we're not liking this idea that the Liberty ship is trying to smuggle stuff in, even though they had zero evidence. They had no evidence. It's just some guy named Thomas Kirk claiming, with again, without any proof, that he was told to not say anything. And so Harrison, his son, and Hallowell went to seize the Liberty ship with help from Captain Corner and the HMS Romney. They basically kind of kicked everybody out and it said, all right, this ship is ours because we've got a problem here. And word started spreading. The city of Boston just became more and more enraged with what was happening. There, there was a crowd that was gathered around the port of Boston wondering what was happening with this ship that was just being taken away. Not to mention this scary HMS uh, Romney with all the guns and everything. Clearly, this was not some kind of security protection. Metaphorically, these guns were pointed right at the colonists, and people felt like 
they need to do something about it. And in fact, this mob, essentially this crowd, went after Harrison's house and they they uh, broke uh, his windows. They even found a, a pleasure boat that Harrison had and they, they basically dragged it around and they burned it. Just a ridiculous amount of stuff has happened. It just started boiling over. This became known as the Liberty Affair. And it started spreading word. And while there are many different ways of looking at the American Revolution and saying you know, this sparked protests and it sparked a movement, the Liberty Affair really was one of these moments that really encapsulated why people were so angry and upset at the British. And as all this was happening, more protests, more anger, more division between loyalists and colonists, it became so out of hand, but it also propped up John Hancock because Hancock was basically in the middle of all this and he he saw what was happening to his business. He was losing money. His ship was literally being captured with no reason and no evidence. And he was accused of smuggling eventually was brought to court. But there was one fellow who was helping him out a little bit. That was John Adams. And we'll get to John Adams later on in the series. But the point is that Hancock was eventually uh, dropped with a charge. He was initially charged, but then they dropped charges for whatever reason. Probably because they didn't want to stoke more tensions, but that's just a total guess from me. And Hancock's political power really got started because he personally witnessed this massive government going after his own, not just his business, his family, really. Because again, you remember, he inherited all this wealth. He found a mentor around that time. He got to meet someone you probably know. If you drink beer, you also probably know this name too. He met Samuel Adams, and Samuel Adams was an older guy, but just a staunch patriot, and he really helped give Hancock that drive, you know, to fight for the cause. And because Adams was Samuel Adams was the guy who was kind of like the activist, you know, he was so passionate about this cause, um, and he was already known as basically the main voice for the Sons of Liberty and for other movements that were happening at the time. But Hancock was a little bit more reasoned. He actually wanted to uh, a different approach. Before, I mentioned um, Governor Hutchinson. Now, Hutchinson, representing the British crown amidst this whole entire chaos, Hancock had a different strategy. He actually tried to work with Governor Hutchinson, try to build a relationship with him. Uh, Hutchinson approved some of elections that involved Hancock. He approved him making sure that everything was going smoothly with the, with the elections, but he he never he, he didn't contest. Hutchinson did not contest many of the elections that Hancock had won in. But as time went along, it just, it just didn't work out. Again, this is one a classic example of someone like Hancock who knew that things were happening in a in a just a horrible way. He was someone who wanted to build, still continue to build relations with someone, even though he vehemently disagreed 
with the authority that he represented, in this case, Governor Hutchinson. Hancock did not like the violence that was happening. Uh, he supported things like, for example, the Boston Tea Party, but he didn't like how a lot of these colonists were going about it, especially when it came to attacking customs officials. I mentioned earlier about burning the boat. I mean, okay, you might not like the boat, you might not like the customs official, but doing something like you know, going after someone's private property was something he really did not support. In part because he personally saw how his own property was getting violated by a tyrannical government. Probably in his mind, he's thinking, why would I want tyranny in another form going after my own private property? And as Hancock became more and more influential, uh, he worked with Sam Adams, even though they both had a lot of differences on independence, on how to go about things. I mentioned earlier how Adams is that kind of activist sort of mindset. But Hancock had enough wisdom, he had enough experience and connections that he later became the president of Congress in May 1775. What's strange, though, is that the previous president, Pete Randolph, was expected to be the president for some time, but Randolph had some business down in the House Burgesses in Virginia, and people decided to choose Hancock as his replacement, but perhaps initially only temporarily. Now, what's was funny is that it was happening in 1775, and turns out that Hancock wasn't going to be there for just a short period of time. In fact, he he was there for more than two years, and probably the craziest two years he can ever be in as president of Congress. When he presided over this, he put out the first ever declaration of the causes and necessities of taking up arms. This was his first major resolution that he had pushed for in uh, under his leadership. And I'm going to read you a quote from there because it really encapsulates his platform, and what he was calling for, the precursor to the Declaration of Independence. Quote, with hearts fortified with these animating reflections, we must solemnly, before God and the world, declare that, exerting the utmost energy of those powers, which our beneficent creator hath graciously bestowed upon us, the arms we have been compelled by our enemies to assume, we will in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employed for the preservation of our liberties, being with one mind resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves, unquote. What's interesting about this is it doesn't call for independence, but it called for living as free people, not as slaves. This was the position that Hancock initially had. But I, from my reading and from other sources that I read from other historians, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which is that pamphlet, that powerful pamphlet that essentially reiterated this divine protection that the colonists were looking for with regards to their rights and their safety and their prosperity, as well as the influence of Samuel Adams. Hancock believed that this is now the time to call for independence. 
And I'm sure that people in the time disagreed about what independence was going to look like. Was this feasible? And what it, what was exactly going to happen? Or you can't just declare independence and not have an idea of what to do. Because at that time, if you were going to say, I want to declare independence from the crown, that's like a death sentence. You, you couldn't go against the crown. You, if you, even if you really, really wanted to, what about your families? Think about all the loyalists that were living around the country, many of whom would probably be so dedicated as British subjects that they would report your families and your friends and and essentially erase your support system forever. These were very, very big questions that Hancock had to deal with. And he really believed that with his position, he needed to be that presiding officer that would moderate all these different positions amongst the crowd of about 60 members at that time in that Second Continental Congress. Hancock also knew that he needed to put his own ambitions aside. It was around that time that George Washington was chosen as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And Hancock was initially not too pleased about that. He wanted to be the commander-in-chief. But he still wrote to George Washington and believed that his integrity and his values were right for this commander-in-chief position. He wrote to George Washington on July 6, 1776, two days after the ratification signing of the Declaration of Independence. He writes, quote, The Congress, for some time past, have had their attention occupied by one of the most interesting and important subjects that could possibly come before them or any other assembly of men. Although it is not possible to foresee the consequences of human actions, yet it is, nevertheless, a duty we owe ourselves and posterity in all our public councils to decide in the best manner we are able and to leave the event to that being who controls both causes and events to bring about his own determinations. Later writes, impressed with this sentiment, and at the same time fully convinced that our affairs may take a more favorable turn, the Congress have judged necessary to dissolve the connection between Great Britain and the American colonies and to declare them free and independent states, as you will perceive by the enclosed declaration, which I am directed by Congress to transmit to you and to request you will have it proclaimed at the head of the army in the way you shall think most proper." What is so fascinating about this letter and the sentiment that Hancock had was that he was doing his job as the presiding officer to deliver the message of that Congress. He had to be the forefront leader and speak for that entire body. There's no question that there were people who disagreed on some of the elements and people who were probably fearful of the consequences of what they were doing. Um, but he also understood that he had to put his passion forward and make his statement clear to Washington, who was going to be the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He's saying, I have your back. 
let's put aside any differences, any ambitions, anything we had to think about before. Let's have our common theme and our common mission together. That's exactly what his job was, and I think he really, really delivered it here. Hancock knew that with something like his job as president of Congress, he needed to be giving up a lot. And this was this was not something that he could just shrug off. A lifestyle of being away from your family for extended periods of time was not just something for the military. It was a way of life for a lot of these men. I've decided to do something a little different from a lot of my episodes and perhaps from some other kinds of shows. And I wanted to read a bit of an excerpt from a letter that he wrote to a woman named Dolly Quincy, a woman he had a huge crush on throughout this time, probably one of his best sources of comfort in the midst of all this madness, a a guy who was presiding over a Congress with all these fierce debates, a man who had to literally move the Congress from one city to another because the British were literally after them, you know, moving in and out of Philadelphia and Trenton and all this happened. Just a wild, wild time. There was virtually no time for him to see his family or spend enough time with family. And he writes here, quote, I shall make out as well as I can, but I assure you, my dear soul, I long to have you here, and I know you will be as as expeditious as you can. When I part from you again, it must be a very extraordinary occasion. I have sent everywhere to get a gold or silver rattle for the child, in this case their daughter Lydia, with a quarrel to send, but cannot get one. I will have one if possible on your coming. I have sent a sash for her and two little papers of pins for you. If you do not want them, you can give them away. Remember me to all the family. May every blessing of an indulgent providence attend you. I most sincerely wish you a good journey and hope I shall soon, very soon, have the happiness of seeing you with the utmost affection and love. My dear Dolly, I am yours forever. John Hancock. It's from a letter written in March 10th, 1777. He would eventually marry her two months later. They had two children, but unfortunately, both of them never made it to adulthood. So this was a a representation of how difficult life was working for the Second Continental Congress. Thinking that you're only going to be there for a temporary amount of time, not knowing what the consequences of what you were doing are going to be. You can only know the magnitude, but you can never know what the specifics were. When George III received his copy of the Declaration of Independence, only one of the signer's names was on that document. It was John Hancock's name. Imagine how John Hancock must have been feeling when he knew that only his name was going to be on that. And you know, and everyone knew then, that John Hancock's business was going to be in big trouble. <laughs> his livelihood was going to be in trouble. 
George III read that name and probably thought to himself, there's other guys behind this, and I'm going to get them all. That's probably what he really felt. While it wasn't until 1777 that all the names of the signers were revealed, it didn't take long for many of these men to recognize the consequences of speaking out against the British crown. And this series will touch upon a lot of these stories that while forgotten, have not disappeared. This is what the series is all about. It's about bringing out these stories of sacrifice. As imperfect as these men are, especially with 2021 standards, these men had a purpose in life. And nothing that we're debating or enjoying or whatever we're doing in this country could be possible without these particular actions of these men. Now, John Hancock was a devout patriot. He dedicated years of his life to the service of a nation. While he dedicated many years of service, countless funds to support the Continental Army, especially because he was a rich guy, his health became a bigger problem over time. He was governor of Massachusetts, first time, 1780 to 1785, and then again from 85 to 93, with some gaps in between, because with his health in flux, his career was kind of in flux too. Ultimately, though, his story as governor of Massachusetts is not as profound as his time as the president of Congress, even though he was only president for a couple of years, in part because of his health and some of the other things he wanted to do. He wanted to spend more time with his family, I suppose, which is understandable. I mentioned earlier about the sacrifices that he's had to make. And he was still governor when he passed away in 1793. He is buried at the Granary Burying Ground in downtown Boston. If you ever get a chance to walk the Freedom Trail in Boston, I highly encourage you to visit that small cemetery. Other notable figures are buried there. It's a wonderful piece of American history for all to enjoy. Now, as we think about John Hancock, what is his role and his legacy in American history? He presided over one of the most chaotic times in American history. Such a chaotic time that we really don't have any enough time in this episode to cover everything that happened under his watch. But as you'll see with some other figures that come into play, in the rest of this series, you'll start to see how this convention of 56 total signers came to be and how significant a lot of this work eventually became as a new nation. One thing I want to first mention here is that Hancock showed 
how you can have passion and patriotism without agitation. So let's not be the agitator like Captain Corner, who, again, I don't know what he was up to, but let's not be the Captain Corner agitator to show some kind of passion for someone or something. Hancock knew that if he were to be showing passion, he knew that he had to exercise all the options available. That's why he built relationships with Governor Hutchinson. That's why he wasn't on board with the independence movement too quickly, because he wanted to see what else the British had to offer. Were there Was there any possibility for the colonists to have a voice? When he saw the end of the road, that's when he knew that independence was the right way forward. And not to mention that as a religious man himself, he also believed probably with the help of Thomas Paine and others, that this was not just a calling for himself from himself. This was a calling from God and a calling for divine providence and for God to, to send him this message that what is happening in society was wrong. He witnessed personally What happens when a tyrannical government doesn't care a bit about people's rights? It basically just becomes a group of people just trying to annoy others and and fill their own pockets. Building relationships for him was about trying to resolve disputes and working with people who have different styles and views. Think about how lacking that is nowadays. It seems like everyone is in their own camp, and anyone who disagrees with them, God forbid, is someone who is a horrible person. That's the perception that we're getting, unfortunately. We are siloed so often in our own worlds. Even people who have different styles, we might make them feel uncomfortable just because they have a different style. Well, think about the relationship between Sam Adams and John Hancock. These two guys could have been, couldn't have been more different in their styles. Heck, I don't think Sam Adams really agreed to anything with John Hancock on a lot of on issues until that Declaration of Independence. Goes to show that even with different styles, you can have people with that common mission to make things right. Both Adams and Hancock agreed that you can't just board someone's ship and take their stuff away without any reason. That's a good starting point. Let's work on that. It's the same thing nowadays. People want to look for the perfect partner, the perfect group of people who agrees with you on every single little issue. It's never going to happen. If you want to, for example, start a voting drive, get someone interested in voting, someone who loves American civics or loves American history and say, look, we might not agree on every single issue, but let's work together on something bigger to get more people to participate in an election and in our democracy. Now, I want to connect every single signer to two of the biggest pillars that I see in them. Now, every signer has lived a life or has done things 
that relate to the six pillars of Washington's farewell address, patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, and civility. But every episode, I will be picking two that stand out the most. And I'm always curious to know if any of you have any different ideas about which other pillars you think are most relatable to the signer for every single episode. The first pillar I have identified is patriotism. And that's pretty obvious. Now, I'm not not picking patriotism just because he was literally associated with patriots at the time. But he believed that putting others in country before himself was an honorable thing to do. Like I mentioned before, he wanted to be a commander-in-chief. But he knew that squabbling with Washington is not going to cut it. It's not going to get you anywhere. And he also knew that putting his name on King George's copy, risking his life and fortune, remember a fortune that he inherited, so it wasn't really built by him, it was built by people in his family, putting all that on the line for an idea, it wasn't a country at the time, because they didn't conceive what the country would look like, just for an idea, is something very, very honorable, and something worth considering. He also embodied the idea of civility. He understood the law. As much as he hated it, he knew that you need a, a some kind of way to get things done. One way is to obviously work with the governor. But he also knew that he needed to get the papers correctly. Like I mentioned earlier, he had a bit of a problem with customs officials. By the way, any customs officials out there might want to know what the law is because otherwise you might get someone like John Hancock throwing you out of your own ship. He also knew that he he could not support violence. I, I know that the American Revolution is very much defined by civil obedience and war, but the reality is it didn't always start that way. That There were people who wanted to, and like I said earlier, Exercise all the options first. Make sure that the disobedience part is not the only way to do things. Because clearly, people like Hancock and Adams, and uh, not, not Samuel Adams as much, John Adams and others clearly felt that there were other ways. But once those were off the table, they needed to think, okay, where is the next way to go? No doubt that the signers did not want war, but they felt within themselves that this was not their choice, but the course of history. And they needed their divine protection from their creator to ensure that no populace ever has to go through what they had to go through. Finally, Hancock knew that he needed to be the adult in the room. As smart and passionate as those signers were, John Hancock had to be the captain of the ship and had to make sure that no one was going to ruin it for everybody. He had to, he had a lot of work to do. He even needed to hire clerks to do correspondence, to manage the convention and other logistics. So while he wasn't the fervent 
guy in the room proclaiming all the amazing quotes that you hear from the American Revolution, he had to steady that ship probably because he knew that this example of governance is what the colonies had to prove to the British government. Now, the British weren't just going to say, all right, you, you do a great job of governing. Why don't you be a, an independent country? But he knew he, had, he needed to set that precedent. And not to mention that he was also taking a temporary role in place of Peyton Randolph. And he also knew he, it wasn't just going to be about his definition and his tenure as president. He was also doing it for institution and for people who preceded him and people who would replace him as president of the Second Continental Congress. So being indulged in the room, having those values of leadership, of setting the ship, even when you really, 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 really want to voice your opinion about something, that is a virtue in itself. We can all learn from that. John Hancock has been a wonderful role model, I think, for a lot of us, not just in his fancy schmancy signature, which is very, very admirable. I wish my signature was as cool as that. People who see a signed document from me, I guess, can be the judge of that. But Hancock also showed that you can be a leader with passion, but not lose your cool. And that is a good thing. Because if there's anything that we need right now, we need some kind of steadfast leadership and example from our leaders. While Hancock was not a perfect man, and neither were the other 55 signers, he showed exemplary courage and leadership that was expected from people in positions of power like him. My hope is that as we explore the other 55 signers, we will keep in mind the steadfast leadership that John Hancock displayed that would ultimately result to the independence of these United States of America. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Sacred Honor series. I hope you enjoy listening to it, and I hope you will tune in for our future episodes coming out for this series. Subscribe and tune in for the next episode of this show. And remember, a day in America always gets better with our friends and fellow citizens.